look fun. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles. You guys can have a seat. You guys want to sing it again, don't you? It's staying standing. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 as we continue our study through this gospel. We're finishing up uh, chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9. Uh, this week and next week, these are really kind of heavy hitting topics uh, that Jesus is going to be teaching us about both this week, next week. This week, uh, Jesus speaking about the realities of hell and the reality of sin. And then next week, looking at what Jesus had to say about marriage and divorce. Uh, both topics that are important to us, uh, though heavy hitting in nature. Let me read this for us. We start in verse 42. And Jesus is still teaching his disciples here. And he says this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Father, as we consider these weighty words, this teaching from Jesus, we pray that you would sober our minds, work in our hearts, so that we might hate our sin more, and that we might love Jesus more and be more like him as a result of his teaching. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, the, the story of the Titanic has been, by and large, brought... I don't know what just happened to my PowerPoint. It just disappeared. Uh, but the story, there it is. The story of the Titanic uh, has been much back into our minds ever since the unfortunate tragedy the last couple weeks of the submarine that imploded on its way down to visit the wreckage of the Titanic. The Titanic was the largest ship in its day to ever be built. It had state-of-the-art technology. It had the greatest accommodations that anyone had ever seen on any ship ever. It was the first ever ship also to have automatic watertight doors so that if the ship began taking on water, they could seal it off so that no more water would come in. And because of these things, the Titanic was declared to be the first ship that was unsinkable. But as we know, in the early morning hours on the fourth day of its maiden voyage, it was going full speed ahead through an ice field, despite many warnings they had received about icebergs sighted in their vicinity. The captain, Captain Smith at the time, uh, left the helm confident that they would be fine, that nothing would sink their ship. And around midnight, the iceberg was struck, and just two hours later, the boat was in the bottom of the ocean, 
and had claimed over 1,500 lives. The Titanic has stood as a symbol of man's pride and hubris, thinking that something that is unsinkable uh, would now be sunk. We and our pride, we tend to think in our lives that we have everything we need within ourselves to stay afloat on the sea of life. But none of us is unsinkable, especially with the realities of sin and temptation lurking about as we travel through the darkness. We cannot afford to just speed through life full steam, carelessly at ease, when there are spiritual dangers lurking about. And this morning in this text, Jesus is warning us about the very serious and somber danger of sin. And those who truly follow him are those who will heed his warning and take him seriously. In fact, Jesus is so serious in his language about sin in this passage that if you take a look at verse 42, verse 42, he actually says it would be better for us to be like the Titanic, down sunk in the bottom of the ocean, than for us to be the cause of someone sinning. Why such drastic language, shocking, surprising language from Jesus talking about sin here? Well, first of all, Jesus is letting us know that he's talking about sin so seriously because he knows that we have an eternal destination that each one of us is headed to. That's the first thing that we see in this passage, two eternal destinations that each of us are headed to. He tells us about both of them. First, he talks about heaven in verse 47. In verse 47, he talks about the kingdom of God, entering the kingdom of God, that is heaven. But even more so, he talks about the destination of hell. He mentions it three times in this text, once in verse 43, another time in verse 45, and another in verse 47. Heaven or hell. These are the two options that scripture lays out for us as our eternal destination after death. Now, if you ask the common person on the street what happens after you die, almost everyone will have an opinion, will have an answer for you when you ask that question. The more uh, pessimistic person on the street might say something like, well, you know, when you die, you just cease to exist. You just, you're just done. It's, everything goes black. The more optimistic person may some, say something like, well, I believe when you die that you're just rejoined with your family and your loved ones and you just hang out together. Uh, in the afterlife. But it would be very surprising if you asked the common person on the street what happens after you die and they started talking to you about the reality of hell. Rarely do we hear today mentions of hell. But Jesus in this passage is speaking very soberly, very clearly about the reality of hell, that it is a real place that it is filled with real people and that it is a real danger. He doesn't say, uh, uh, he doesn't, Jesus actually spoke more about hell than anyone else in the entire Bible. I think he mentions it something like 70 times in his teaching, more than any of the other people in scripture. The most loving person who ever lived and does live spoke the most about hell. It is because Jesus loves us that he warns us 
about the reality of this place. What is hell like? Take a look at verse 44. Verse 44, he talks, uh, excuse me, verse 43, verse 43, he talks about hell as the unquenchable fire, the place where there is always flames and they are always burning hot. In verse 48, verse 48, he talks about hell being the place where their worm does not die. It's a graphic picture, but really the, the translation for worm is, is maggot or um, a grub, something that eats decaying flesh. It's a disgusting picture, but Jesus wants us to know exactly what hell is like. You want to know what hell is like. It is like being eaten alive, and yet you are never fully consumed, because elsewhere in his teaching, he tells us that hell is an eternal punishment. It never ceases. You are experiencing torturous pain for all time without ceasing. That's why he says later in the gospel that hell is filled with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, utter sadness. God, please make this pain end. When will the fire cease? When will this pain go away? And gnashing of teeth, anger. How dare you, God? Why? Why would you do this? Still utter defiance against him even after experiencing judgment from him. These are extreme pictures. They're horrifying realities to grapple with. And we may wonder to ourselves, why such serious and drastic judgment upon people in hell? Well, hell is such a seriously torturous place because sin is such a serious grievance offense against a holy God. We have lost our taste for hell today, mainly because we do not consider the magnitude of sin in comparison to the holiness of God. By and large, we remain nonchalant, relaxed, flippant about the reality of sin in our society and in our culture. And Jesus is saying it is that very passivity, it is that very indifference, it is that very relaxed state that we handle our sin that sends people to hell. Instead of repenting, the natural man revels in his sin or at best is indifferent to his sin and they pay the ultimate price for doing so. But Christians, Jesus is saying in this passage, Christians understand the seriousness of sin because we understand the gospel. We understand that sin was so great, so grievous, that it had messed us up so completely that there was nothing that we could do in and of ourselves to get ourselves out of our predicament. No good work that we could do to finally earn God's favor, to finally pay the debt that we owed. It took nothing less than God himself coming down in the person of Jesus to take on the debt of sin, to enable us to be able to get a new heart so that we might be able to love God rather than remain condemned in our sin. It is by his work alone that we are able to be saved. Two destinations. One, hell, by remaining uh, in our sin apart from faith in Christ. The other, heaven. By faith in Christ, we enter in. So, 
For those of us believers in Christ who are headed heavenward, what does a heavenward life, how is a heavenward life oriented? That's what we see next. I don't know what's going on with the, uh, with the PowerPoint, but if you could bring the, the slide back up. Uh, a heavenward orientation is one that is very different, thank you. A heavenward orientation is what we see next, a very different relationship to sin than the unbeliever. Jesus is showing that, uh, that Christians are not indifferent to their sin, but we have a relationship that is militantly opposed to sin. He uses even a very violent language to talk about our relationship to sin as believers. John Stott has this great quote where he talks about our relationship as Christians to sin. Uh, he says this, he said, as Christians who have received salvation in Christ, we are saved from sin's penalty. We are being saved from sin's power and we will be saved from sin's presence. Uh, as Christians, we no longer stand judged in our sin. We are free from condemnation. Jesus has paid the debt. We no longer stand condemned. And we look forward one day in eternity when we will be out of the presence of sin forever, where uh, we will be brought into a world filled with perfection and righteousness and no evil thing will enter in. But until that day we find ourselves still grappling with sin's power in and over our lives. We live in a world where sin is present around us and sin is still present within us. And Jesus is getting at this idea of sanctification, that Christians who have received forgiveness of sins are those who will fight to loose sin's power off of their lives, to become more like Christ and less like their sinful selves. As Ted read for us in Romans 6, when Paul says, uh, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, because Jesus has saved us, does that mean that we just get to go around and do whatever we want and, and live the life of, of, of just our desires and our whims and fancies? And Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so he says, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Jesus in this passage is teaching us how we can kill sin in our lives. What is Jesus' practical strategy for you and I to kill sin in our lives. Four things that I want to point us out, uh, point uh, out to us this morning. Number one, if we are going to kill sin in our lives, if you are going to kill the sin in your life, first, Jesus teaches us you must study the strategies of sin in your life. You must study the strategies of sin in your life. Take a look at the passage again. Look at uh, verses 43, 45, and 47. You'll notice he talks about our hands, he talks about our feet, and he talks about our eyes. What Jesus is trying to do is teach us that sin has pervaded all the areas of our lives. Sin is a power within us that seeks to dictate what we do, our hands, where we go, our feet, and what we look at, our eyes. 
It is like a spiritual cancer that refuses to stay in one spot, but wants to spread out to the entirety of our life and have its influence in each and every area. And so every morning that we wake up, we have to do some self-examination. We have to look and see, what is sin's strategy in my life today? What am I doing? Where am I going? What am I looking at? What is sin's battle plan against me? John Owen, when he was speaking to uh, a youth group back, way, way back in the 1600s, he was telling the young men that he was speaking to, because he knew that they liked military language, he said, boys, you, you have to see sin as a living enemy. And what do you do with a living enemy? You study their battle strategy. You study their mindset. You study their tactics, just like Ted was telling us earlier. And this is what he said. It's a great quote. John Owen said to these young men, one of the most eminent parts of practical spiritual wisdom is finding out the subtleties, policies, and depths of sin to consider and know wherein its greatest strength lies, what advantage it makes of occasions, opportunities, temptations, what are sin's pleas, pretenses, reasonings, what are its strategies, colors, excuses. I love this. We have to learn to trace the serpent of sin's slithering and winding and be able to identify, aha, this is the old man popping up. I know what you're up to. We will never kill sin in our lives until we have seen the total strategy that it has in pervading our lives to the great degree. If we're going to kill our sin, we must study its strategies. Number two, killing sin in our lives requires that we take responsibility. Uh, If you are going to kill sin in your life, you must take responsibility for killing your own sin. Uh, Do you notice how Jesus describes uh, what language he uses in 43, 45, and 47? He doesn't say, if anyone's hand causes them to sin, if anyone's foot causes them to sin, if anyone's eye causes them to sin, cut it off. What does he say? If your hand, if your foot, if your eye, causes you to sin, cut it off. Jesus is teaching us that we ourselves must take responsibility for our own sin. Only you can kill your own sin. God will use others to help you through praying, through teaching you, through encouraging you, through uh, holding you accountable. But at the end of the day, none of that help will be of use to you unless you yourself apply it and kill your sin. What did God say to Cain when Cain was jealous of his brother Abel? Back in Genesis 4, he said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. Sin should not be your master, Rather, you must master sin. James in James 1 gives us the warning. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer 
who acts. It's so easy, isn't it? Uh, when we sit on a, in a Wednesday night Bible lesson or we read our Bible in the morning or we sit through a sermon just to think because we've heard it, we have lived it. And James is saying we cannot fall for that temptation. Just because you've heard it does not mean that you have done it. You must take up responsibility, apply scripture to your life so that you may be uh, on and on killing sin that exists in your life. If we are going to kill sin, we have to take responsibility. Thirdly, killing sin in your life will require that you take drastic measures against your sin. Take drastic measures against your sin. There's a phrase, go big or go home. Uh, Jesus is essentially saying that about killing sin here. When it comes to killing sin, go big or go home. Uh, Jesus is teaching us that when it comes to sin, we cannot merely medicate, we have to amputate. How many times does he say, cut it off, cut it off, cut it off in this passage? Now, we have to clarify, Jesus is not literally saying, cut off your hand, cut off your foot, gouge out your eye. We're not going to pass a, a saw around the sanctuary this morning as the altar call, He's using it metaphorically. Kent Hughes has a great saying uh, in his commentary. He said, Jesus is not speaking about physical amputation. He is speaking about spiritual mortification, killing sin. And he is seeking for us to, to get all the way down to the root cause and killing sin at the root. When I was a little kid, I used to go over to my grandmother's uh, to garden her flower beds. And for the first week or so, I would pull weeds and I would go back the next day and it seemed like all the weeds that I had dealt with were back and I couldn't understand what in the world was going on. So I asked my grandma, I said, do you have like, are you feeding these weeds? What is going on here? Why do they keep coming back? And she said, well, show me, show me how you're pulling them. So I went up to one and I just grabbed the stem and I yanked it and it just sheared off. And she said, aha, that's your problem. She handed me one of those little digger things, and, and down into the dirt she went, and she said, Adam, you got to get down to the root. You got to pull it up by the root. It is, the root is what is causing the weed to continue to grow. Jesus says, with sin in our lives, you got to get down to the root. Don't just look at the effects of sin. Get down, get to the heart level. Try to figure out through prayer and meditation and, and self-examination, what is going on in my heart? What is the heart defect? What is the root issue that is causing this sin to continue to pop back up? Half-medicated sin will always come back. It is only cutting it off at the root cause that will deal with it. John Owen again said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Why do we take such drastic measures? Well, Paul said in his own life, in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he talked about the drastic measures he took in his own life. And he said, I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He had put barriers in his heart. 
He'd put fences around his life to keep himself faithful in as much as he could, kept himself under discipline, kept himself uh, under self-control so that he might be faithful. Why? Because he loved the Lord. He wanted to honor Jesus, glorify Jesus with his life. We were remembering on Friday morning at men's uh, book study something that Pastor Al Riley used to always say. He said, the Christian life is by and large an 18-inch journey. He said that the Christian life is about getting what's up here 18 inches down to here. That what we know of God becomes real down here in our hearts. When it comes to sin, what we know wrong to be up here won't make a lick of difference in our, in our lives until we feel it to be wrong down here, which we will never do unless we have cultivated a deep love for the Lord, a deep sense of what he has done for us through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, so that we might be set free from sin. John Calvin put it so well when he said, it is not the mere fear of punishment that restrains the Christian from sin. Loving and revering God as a loving father, honoring and obeying him as master, even if there were no hell, he would revolt at the very idea of offending his Lord. 1 John 5, 3 tells us, this is the love of God. What, how do we see our love playing out? By keeping his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Taking drastic measures against our sin when we love the Lord, it doesn't feel like drastic measures. It feels like freedom. It feels like peace. It feels like love. If we are going to kill sin in our lives, we have to take drastic measures. And last, killing sin in our life, you must weigh the cost of not killing sin in your life. Uh, I have found that doing, um, being faithful and exercise and trying to eat healthy is not an easy thing to do, and it doesn't have immediate results. You have to wait a little while to see the results, but I have learned the older that I get that if I just eat whatever I want to eat and I don't exercise, there are very quick observable results uh, that come about. It's very easy, isn't it, just to do what we want, just to eat what we want, just to do whatever and not worry about exercise and diet. But those who do the harder thing, taking, uh, eating correctly, exercising well, the results may not be immediate, but in the long run, you see the effects. That is what Jesus is asking us to do in terms of spiritual, uh, spiritual evaluation. Take a look at verse 43 again. Look at how he's doing this. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. Verse 45. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Verse 47, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Do you see what he's doing? He's having, a, he's having us weigh, weigh the cost. You can have temporary loss, which is not really loss at all, 
for eternal gain. Or you can pursue temporary pleasure, which never actually satisfies, sin never really satisfies, in exchange for eternal pain. We all know in our lives the effects of when we've let sin go and not pursued killing it. How it begins to, to become more pervasive in our lives and it gives birth to other sins. And then it just doesn't stay within us, but it starts penetrating out into our relationships, into our families. When if we would have just cut it off right in the moment that it happened, though it would have been the harder thing, we would have seen a lot more uh, fruit. Killing sin is not an easy task. And it's not something that we can do apart from a relationship with Jesus. Some of you may be here this morning and, and you have tried for a very long time to try to figure your life out, to try to quote unquote improve yourself. And the, more hard, the harder that you've tried, the worse it has gotten and you keep falling on your face. You wonder why. Scripture tells us we are dead in our sin. We can't do anything about our predicament to try to improve ourselves. We need the Lord to come in, inside, remake us from the inside out, something that the only, only the Holy Spirit can do, give you a new heart that actually causes you to want to obey the Lord, causes you to actually develop a hatred for sin and a love for God, and over time, he begins actually changing us. But it is only through a relationship with Jesus, only through trusting in him alone as Savior and Lord. Jesus closes the, pas the, the passage by telling us that if we are his followers, we will think about ourselves as living sacrifices. Uh, take a look at verse 49, verse 49, he says, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Two main ingredients for Old Testament sacrifices, fire and salt. Those two things were almost always comprised of a sacrifice. What Jesus is saying is, if you are going to be my follower, you will view yourself as a living sacrifice, that your life will be laid down for him, a sacrifice wholly devoted to him, without spot, without blemish, for his pleasure, for his glory. We put ourselves over into the service of Jesus. We cut sin off because we want to be a pleasing sacrifice to him. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence daily live. I surrender all. As we close, I want us to notice what this means for us corporately as a church family. We've been talking a lot about just us as individuals. But I want you to see the bookends of how Jesus has begun this passage and how he ends this passage. Did you notice? Take a look at verse 42. In verse 42, he, makes a, he starts by having us think corporately. Verse 42, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, a fellow believer, to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. In other words, uh, think about the cost of being the cause of someone else, another Christian, sinning. 
then look at how he ends the passage. Take a look at verse 50. Have salt in yourselves, he says, and be at peace with one another. This killing sin has a corporate dimension to how we treat one another within the church. Churches don't sin against one another. Churches serve one another by helping each other kill sin. A church that is at peace with each other is actually a church that is at war. The war is not against each other. The war is against the darkness around us and the darkness within us. We are most at peace with one another when we are at war with the enemy. The enemy that dwells within, the enemy of sin, and the surrounding darkness of our world. A church at peace will be a church that joins hands at war. So I ask you as we finish this up, are you going full steam ahead in life, asleep at the wheel in the midst of the dangers of the icebergs of temptation and sin? And if so, may the teaching of Jesus wake each one of us up to get back to the helm, to start navigating our way with the word through the darkness around us so that we might not hit the icebergs and sink, but that we might kill sin and enter life as Christ uh, has offered it. Let us be those.